0: Well, if you do have a Bible, we will be in Isaiah 66. Isaiah chapter 66. Uh, let me briefly just remind you where we left off, but then we are on the, the cusp of the end of our study. Here this morning may well be our, our final time in the book of Isaiah, and we're, we're winding down to the last really segment, last half of the chapter. Uh, That we began last week. Now, recall the context with me briefly. But these final two chapters, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 65 and 66, is God's response to Isaiah's prayer, which he uttered earlier in chapters 63 and 4. And that in those chapters, if you recall, uh, Isaiah was praying for God to come for for God to fulfill the promises that he had just made, the predictions uh, of the exaltation of Israel the establishment of the eternal kingdom, etc., those prophecies that were given in chapters 60 to 62, Isaiah then prays, you know, similarly to John in the New Testament where John says, Lord Jesus, come quickly, right? And the idea is, Lord, please come and fulfill these promises that you've made. Well, God now is answering Isaiah's prayer with giving us a final set of prophecies, which is Isaiah chapter 65 and 6. And in a sense, these two chapters sum up the entire message of the book of Isaiah. All the major themes and concepts are here uh, revisited and kind of a, a little bow tied on them, if you will. Well, if you recall, the big idea of chapter 65, which we talked about a few weeks ago, is that the Lord will establish a glorious kingdom in which the righteous will flourish, but the wicked will be denied entrance. That's the big theme of chapter 65, and 66 is going to continue that theme with some more specific areas of emphasis. Isaiah 66 is all about how the glorious God desires humble worship. He will appear to vindicate the humble, destroy the proud, and be worshipped by all the earth. So in a sense, it's the climax of history that we're looking at here in, in Isaiah chapter 66. And we've subdivided our, our, look, our examination of this chapter into uh, three major chunks two of which we covered last time. So our final examination this morning, will begin in verse 14 and work our way down to the end, verse 24. But recall that the, the chapter began with God asserting the fact that he wants uh, humble worship, genuine, sincere worship. And he is deserving of it because he is the glorious God and the heavens are his throne, the earth is his footstool. And that concept is, you know, we spent a number of, of uh, minutes developing those ideas, verses 1 to 4, then it segues into the, the, kind of the, the middle of the chapter, the core of the chapter, if you will, verse 5 to 13 is another uh, prediction that Israel will be restored. And of course, it, it echoes a lot of thoughts that we saw earlier, even in the previous chapter and throughout the book. But then today we're going to see, in verse 14 to 24, the final ch- uh, portion of the chapter is all about how God is going to glorify himself, and he's going to vindicate the righteous and destroy the wicked. So this two-edged sword that God will uh, glorify Himself, He will be exalted, He will be worshipped. The Apostle Paul will uh, put it this way, right? In fact, it's not original with Paul, because he's quoting Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 45, if you recall. But but the the passage in in Isaiah 45, Philippians chapter two, the idea that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, that idea is of course uh, what's, what's being emphasized here in Isaiah 66. But that idea, that reality is a two-edged sword. When all bow, there will be those who have done so voluntarily, right? They will be the righteous that were, will be vindicated at the coming of Christ, the exaltation uh, of God as he is universally recognized and worshipped. But there will be those who have resisted him, and they will bow, but they will be forced to bow. And they, they will then experience eternal judgment thereafter. And that is, of course, the, the, the big message of the Bible, which is so appropriate then why Isaiah, after 66 chapters, that's where he chooses to end, is that God is glorious. He will be glorified. And you can either bow now or bow later when you're forced to. But this idea uh, is, of course, what is front and center in this passage. So, if you got your Bible, let's begin. Let's just read the first uh, few verses here. Let's start in verse 14 and go to oh, about 18. Let's go 14 to 18. And we'll comment and we'll just kind of piecemeal. You know, as we work our way through, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, go piece by piece. Isaiah sixty-six fourteen 14 says, And when you see this, your heart shall rejoice. Again, the this is what we ended with last time. The idea of the restoration uh, of Israel, that God would bring peace like a river. You remember that? And uh, we talk about the song that my little five-year-old was singing in the shower, right? Peace like a river. But that's, that's the uh, promise given to us, verse 12, 13. In light of that, he says, when you see this, verse 14, your heart will rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like an herb. The hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants and his indignation toward his enemies. Do you see the two-edged sword there? His hand will be known by his servants. The idea of the, the blessing of God bestowed upon them, but his indignation toward his enemies. For behold, verse 15, "The Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind. Have we ever seen a you know chair, a fiery chariot like a whirlwind in the scripture? Right? I mean, yeah, I haven't seen it personally, but there has been one. Remember, I, Elijah was caught up into heaven with a, a chariot, a flaming chariot in a whirlwind. But this time, God says when he comes, he's going to come to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Verse 16. For by fire and by his word will the Lord plead with all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. (laughs) Thanks, Isaiah. Could you, you know, get any clearer? Verse 17. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination uh, and the uh, uh, the moose shall be consumed together, says the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them and will send those that escape of them unto the nations to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud. And draw uh, that draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, or Yavan, to the isles afar off that I have uh, that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Oh, pause there. I, I went too far. Did not I? I was going to go to verse eighteen. So let's. I was carried away. It's so good. Okay. Well, let's 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 go back. Let's look at verse fourteen to eighteen here quick and notice the progression of thought. All right. First, the big idea as Martin helpfully summarizes of this paragraph, verse 14 to 18, is simply this, that when God restores his people to Jerusalem, which is what we just discussed last time, that's verses 10 to 13, when God restores his people to Jerusalem in the millennium, then they will rejoice and prosper. But on his and her enemies, that is the enemies of Israel, the enemies of Jerusalem, which are then in turn the enemies of God, he will swoop down in judgment like a fire. Now, recall with me. I, I, we got the time uh, because we're we're examining a smaller portion here. Go ahead, go ahead and pop over to the New Testament. Let's look at Second Thessalonians real quick, because what I want you to see is that this is a biblical theme. It's not just a you know Old Testament theme, right? I know that's kind of a pet peeve of mine, but the whole idea is, you know, that is often charged the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New, and that is that's a false dichotomy. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And both Old and New Testament reveal God in both His glory, His grace, His love, His mercy, as well as His wrath and His justice. Well, we see this very clearly not only in our passage Isaiah 66 that we just read, the idea is He'll come with fiery, you know, chariots of fire, whirlwind to come, destroy His enemies. Well, this is also the theme of Second Thessalonians chapter one. Recall this. I know we've read this a couple of different times and different occasions but it is worthy of of repetition. The context is, of course, Paul writing to the Thessalonian believers, which he had only been there a few weeks, right, about three weeks. Well, the book of Acts says three Sabbath days uh, that he was there in the city of Thessalonica, but then he was run out of town. Well, Paul, knowing then that the the believers that were left behind were suffering persecution, he's worried about them. So he sends Timothy to go check on him. He, uh, He hears that they're doing well, and so he sits down and he writes uh these two letters first second thessalonians but in light of that reality it's interesting let's pick it up in verse three paul says this he says we are bound to thank god always for your brethren as it is meet or appropriate because that for your faith grows exceedingly and the charity of every one of you uh, all toward another abounds so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So notice the context, the, per, the persecutions and tribulations that they're enduring. Verse 5, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, seeing as a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. In other words, hang in there. If you're being persecuted, God will come back at some point and persecute your persecutors. So he says, You just hang in there. God will make all things right. Verse 7, he says, To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And notice this here's the same fire motif that Isaiah capitalized upon. Verse 8 In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. make a bigger deal of this uh, in a few moments, but I always find this helpful is that, you know, hell is essentially giving people what they want. Because they who have rebelled against God and rejected Him, God says, okay, well, here's what life looks like without me. And so He exiles them from His presence and from His glory. Whereas the book of Isaiah will constantly speak of God's uh, blessing on Israel in those terms, that they get to behold his glory, that they are with him and they're within, you know, the spear uh, of his blessing and presence. But those who are wicked and reject him, they'll be exiled and punished. He says, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come, verse 10, so here's the flip side. When he shall come to be glorified in the saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. And I love verse 9 and 10 are very dramatic in their contrast. Verse 9 is the punishment of the evil uh, doers who are exiled from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. But then flip that, verse 10 the saints will be glorified in that we will sit and admire God, he'll be admired by all them who believe. I love that. right? We have numerous examples I pointed out before in the Psalter where David speaks of the beauty that is God and how he longs to go and behold the beauty of the Lord to inquire at his temple. He says, Psalm 27 and elsewhere. And this idea of, of the eternal abode of the righteous who are in the presence of God, admiring him, that is our blessed state as we will be in the immediate presence of our creator and redeemer. But, The unbelievers, on the flip side, will get what they want, and they will be exiled from that very presence that they have so long rejected and spurned. Well, this idea is, of course, going to be followed. So back to Isaiah. All right, notice again, this is both an Old and New Testament theme. But back to Isaiah 66. Again, the two edged sword, when God comes, verse 14, the hand of the Lord will be known toward his servants and his indignation toward his enemies. He will come with those chariots of fire and render his anger with fury, uh, etc. He says he will, he will destroy all those who are, again, uh, in varying forms of false worship that they're participating in, in uh, verse 17. And he says in verse 18, "...for I know their works and their thoughts." Right? We cannot hide from the all-knowing, all-seeing judge of the universe." He says, and I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. In other words, when the Messiah returns, his judgment will be upon all nations. We could parallel this with Zechariah 14, as well as Revelation 19, uh, this idea of all nations will appear before God, he will judge all people, and yet because of that judgment, the world will see his glory which again is, is taken not only in a figurative sense that they'll see his strength and his might in that, you know, because that's one way you can take the term glory is you, you can take it in, as a, a word representing or describing his strength and his might that he will demonstrate as he prevails over his enemies. That's absolutely true. But I think it's even more than that because in Isaiah 60, if you recall, it describes how the actual glory of God, that is the physical, visible manifestation of the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God will reside over Israel and it will protect uh, Israel. It will shine forth from Jerusalem. Isaiah 60 described that. Uh, We see it elsewhere in the book of Isaiah. Zechariah says the same thing. But this idea is, is highlighted here in verse 18, that when he comes and he judges all nations, it says, they will come and see my glory. They will see the glory of God and there will be a universal recognition of God as the one who is worthy of worship. But he takes it a step farther, all right? And that's where, uh, we'll keep reading, but verses 19 to 21, it takes it a step further. Not only will the nation see his glory when he comes, when he judges all nations, when he eradicates evil. But then people outside of Israel will also turn to him and worship him. There'll be a remnant of believing Israelites who will travel as missionaries to other parts of the world to tell Gentiles about God's glory and invite them to come and worship him. And then, of course, we'll, as we will read in this passage, this is uh Also, it's a repeat of what we've already seen in the book of Isaiah, but let's read it. Verse 19, he says, And I will set a sign among them and will send those that escape of them unto the nations to Tarshish, Pul, Lud, that draw the bow, to Tubal and Yavan, to the isles afar off. In other words, you know, these are representative nations uh, from the ends of the earth, right? From one end to the next. Uh, God says, We'll send these, the remnant, that is, those who have escaped the judgment. In other words, the righteous, those who have. Uh, made it uh, because they were trusting in Christ. And he will send them to these foreign nations, continuing verse 19, that have not heard of my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. They'll go and say, hey, come and see our God. Verse 20, it says, and they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations, upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon the swift beasts to my holy mountain, Jerusalem says the lord as the children of israel bring an offering uh, in a clean vessel unto the house of the lord he says verse 21 and i will also take of them for priests and for levites says the lord pause there now again this idea of god's sending missionaries to the you know ends of the earth so that all nations will come and recognize his glory this is seen throughout the book of isaiah as well as other passages in the old testament let me just sample give you a sample list of a few passages Recall with me briefly, back in Isaiah chapter 2, I'm just going to reread this, but in Isaiah chapter 2, this was one of the early predictions that God made in the prophecies of Isaiah. Chapter 2, verse 1 and following, says, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the last days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, come you. And let us go up to the mountain of the Lord unto the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion will go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We'll see this again. I don't think I put this one in your notes, uh, but says it again, Isaiah chapter four. In that day, verse two, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Remember the branch prophecies. That's a title for the Messiah term branch is used about half a dozen times in you know, Isaiah Zechariah, Jeremiah will also use it but it's basically describing the coming Davidic descendant right The, the branch is a way of referring to the, the messianic line right He will be a branch from the seed of David. but in that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth uh, shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel and shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and a smoke by day. Do you remember this? I love this, but this is Isaiah 4, 5, chapter 4, verse 5. He says, he'll... Establish a cloud and a smoke by day, and the shining of flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. All right, and again, we're getting there in our Exodus series, but we're going to start seeing a lot of this glory cloud, right, in the book of Exodus. That cloud of fire, you know, cloud by day, fire by night, sort of a picture of of God leading His children through the wilderness, and then we'll see Him use that as a defense. Right, when they're getting ready to cross the Red Sea. It says that the presence of God goes from before them to behind them. Why? To block the way, because the Egyptians are coming and they're trying to you know, wipe out the Israelis. But the defense is put up by the immediate presence of God. And God says, I'm gonna do that again. Well, Isaiah says it in, in, in chapter four, he says it again in chapter 60. All right, let me just reread that real quickly. But Isaiah 60, I alluded to this one just a second ago. But Isaiah 60, first uh, few verses, he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Remember, this is Isaiah speaking to his generation. He says, hey, you know, look up, if you will, uh, because the glory of God is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall rise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you. And all the Gentiles will come to your light, verse 3. Isaiah 60, verse three, the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising, right? And then it continues. They'll gather themselves together, bring uh, the remnant of the Jews that are scattered across the ends of the earth, right? The whole idea of the diaspora, all these Jews that have been uh, you know, scattered across. And he says, they'll be brought back and they will come. The Gentile nations, kings will come uh, to, to give obeisance to uh, the Lord, the king of glory well again this has been a huge theme we won't go there for sake of time but uh, Zechariah chapter 8 will say the same thing sorry skip slides of me again but Zechariah 8 23 uh, and, and 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 as well as chapter 14 the same book Zechariah it will talk about again this idea of the, the glory of God that will come and, and it will be revealed now this concept is of course uh, a huge biblical theme that, as I mentioned before, Paul is going to make a big deal of. Revelation is going to capstone, going to be kind of the capstone to this this thread that we see throughout the Scripture, that God deserves all glory and praise, because when His enemies are destroyed, what does Paul say? Second, we just read it. Second Thessalonians chapter one, then He will then God Christ will be admired in all them that believe, and we will look to Him in admiration and worship, and we will sing hymns to Him like in Revelation 4 and 5, right? He is the creator of the ends of the earth and, and he is to be acknowledged as such. He's the redeemer of, the, uh, you know, of, of we, his children. And so we will sing praises to him. And those, that throne room scene that we see several times in Revelation, but Revelation 4 and 5 and 7, uh, 11 and, and uh, 19, we'll see this concept of, of these, these gathered throngs before the throne of God, that will be singing praise to Yahweh uh, as the creator and redeemer of the universe. Well, that's, again, that's what Isaiah is talking about. So verse 22 and 23, let's read that briefly. He says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Lord. So again, he's emphasizing the same concept but God is guaranteeing that his people will exist before him forever and that all the world will worship him. And this pictures that ideal society that's living in a right relationship to its creator and giving him the glory due unto his name. That's the whole idea. And that we will come, it says, from one new moon to the next, one Sabbath to the next, and we'll worship God. We'll see, uh, and it's probably specifically referring to the millennial time period. Ezekiel is also going to elaborate upon this same theme. Uh, We saw that, I didn't, Digress and talk about that much, but verse 21 says that when his people are regathered, God's going to set up priests and Levites from among them, right? That's Ezekiel 40 to 48. You can go on and read that, but it'll be this restored system of true worship of Yahweh. And this is something that the, God has said he will accomplish, but history has never seen this, but it will happen. This is the climax of history. We're not going to talk about this morning uh, in the morning service because we're not going to get far enough. <laughs> but in, a, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10, that'll be our subject next time, but it's the climax of history where it describes how God is going to reconsolidate, bring back into order everything underneath the headship of Christ. And that's, again, this, that's, that's what we're seeing here is that all, all the earth that is in rebellion against God is going to be restored back to a place uh, of submission. And we're going to see that that's God's endgame. That's his ultimate goal for human history. And and the scripture says this over and over and over again. But notice, as as great and wonderful as that is, right? And that's what we ought be. We who are believers in Christ are looking forward to that day. We will be part of those who, as Paul says, will be uh, admiring him as he comes in his beauty and comes in his glory and comes in his justice But there's a negative side to this, right? This is a two-edged sword. And I think it's so profound, and it might be puzzling at first, but give it a little thought, and it's very appropriate, how Isaiah ends his entire prophecy in verse 24 with some pretty strong words. And I want to ponder this for a few moments before we close. So he's describing this worldwide worship that will be granted to God. But, it says, verse 24, and they shall go forth. And now, who's, who's they? Well, that's the people who are coming to worship God. Those who are coming each new moon and Sabbath and they're coming to worship Yahweh. They're coming to his temple. They're acknowledging his glory. They will go forth, verse 24, and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Period. End of story. Right? <laughs> It's like, thanks, Isaiah. I mean, wow, what a way to end. Well, what's the point here? Well, again, the prophecy of of Isaiah ends on a note of the starkest realism in the words of Grogan. He says, it pictures vividly the lessons to be learned from the eternal judgment of God on sinners for their rebellion against him. It should be noted that this judgment will have the approval of men. And this reminds us of the hallelujah chorus in Revelation chapter 19 and verse one that when God comes to level judgment and justice upon His enemies, upon His foes, the righteous will rejoice. But it's worth noting that our Lord, that is Jesus, while He walked the earth, He quotes from the last verse of the book of Isaiah as a warning to those who would live in sin and offend Christ's little ones. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, three times in the same passage, verses 44, 46, and 48, of mark chapter 9 jesus uses isaiah's solemn words when he describes how their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched he just d- he d- uses this uh description he harnesses this description to elaborate upon what eternal punishment looks like and it's it's incredibly uh <laughs> in fact when we don't i don't have the time to recreate it all here in the next you know 10 minutes but if you recall our Revelation series, we spent a whole, I think a whole week, you know, one session, maybe two on this. If I, I don't recall if it was one or two sessions, but in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment, the second death, the casting, uh, you know, of, of hell into uh, Gehenna. We went through and did the word studies on all those different words uh, of Gehenna, etc. And Hades and, you know... Is it's 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 a very fascinating subject, and we looked through the teachings of Christ, which is, you know, Jesus talks more. You know this, right? But he talks more about hell than he does about heaven. Most of the information we have about hell comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a few comments in Revelation that will come and kind of back that up and elaborate a little bit. Revelation 14, Revelation 19 or 20 uh, will be, you know, kind of elaborate on the the subject of hell, eternal punishment but the the term Gehenna, I think it appears like 12 times in the New Testament, 11 times it's Jesus that is describing it. Uh, So, I mean, Jesus is by far, you know, the one that gives us the most information on hell. And he describes it as a place of weeping, gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, where the worm dies not, and you know this, and and there's there's debates on that. What does that mean? The worm dies not, well, the fire not quenched. That one's pretty obvious. I mean, I think we can visualize that. But what does it mean? The worm dies not. You know, and and there's there's varying inter- interpretations, but probably what it's alluding to is this idea of you know the agony of death, but it won't ever come. You know, what I'm, you know what I'm saying? And it's the idea of you know. <laughs> It's not a very nice picture, but the whole idea of uh, a carcass that is being eaten by worms. And yet it's it's a constant thing. It doesn't stop. He says the worm doesn't die uh, because it never stops feeding. Why does it never stop feeding? Because you never die. You're still there, right? I mean, what a terrible picture. But that's what's going on. But what's fascinating all the more, and I mean, even troubling to some degree, Is that what verse twenty four is implying? Namely, this, and and this is uncertain. And you can take, you know, you know, give some thought to it, and come to your own conclusions. But verse twenty four is implying the picture that is here presented is that those coming to worship God at Jerusalem will actually be able to behold Gehenna. Now, he might be referring simply to the valley. In other words, there's some. Uh, debate on this whether this is something that we see for all of eternity. Most will say eh, probably not, but rather it's it, it's probably alluding to the fact that in the millennium, all right, when Jesus comes back and he sets up his throne, where is? Do you remember the whole Gehenna imagery? This this is just it bears repeating if you're not fresh on it. Gehenna is the Greek word as I've said before appears twelve times in the New Testament. Eleven times it's from the lips of Jesus, but the term Gehenna it's Greek but it's actually drug over from Hebrew. It's actually a Hebrew phrase, Hinnom. It means the Valley of Hinnom. Now the Hinnom Valley, are you familiar with this? Jerusalem, if you go there today, right? Jerusalem is, is, consists of two hills and three valleys. Really, the city of Jerusalem proper sits on two hills with three valleys that surround, right? I mean, it's kind of like this W, if you will. Uh, these three valleys, that encircled those two hills. Well, the far, the farthest western and then it kind of it it comes down on the southern side of, of Jerusalem, that valley is is the deepest valley and it's known as the Hinnom Valley or it's the largest, the longest, I believe. And that valley is where in antiquity, and you can discover this in Jeremiah chapter 7 and elsewhere, but when Israel would worship Molech, you remember this? How do you worship Molech? Do you remember this? Child it's with child sacrifice, exactly. Uh, we have lots of evidence of this. There's an old Greek historian, Diodorus Sicilis, Cis- C- I think is how you say his name, Diodorus Sicilis, who is writing uh, from kind of the Greco-Roman perspective, and he's writing about the Carthaginians. Remember this? The Carthaginians were, the, the, remember your Punic Wars? Punic means it's Latin connected to purple, the purple people, right? Because they were attacking, the Romans were attacking the Carthaginians, and they were the rivals, and they were, they were three big Punic wars, and they were trying to decide who would control the Mediterranean. Well, the, the Carthaginians descended directly from the Canaanites. They were Canaanite. And the Romans wrote about that, you know, even in that time, by the late of the Punic wars, they were still worshiping Molech with child sacrifice. We have abundant evidence of this, enormous amounts of evidence of this. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go Google Gezer sometime, G-E-Z-E-R. Uh, the evidence at Gezer in modern Israel that's been discovered. Uh, I'd encourage you to look up a guy by the name of Joel Kramer, uh, who's uh, one of my archeology span profs. He has uh, chronicled some interesting stuff on Gezer. All sorts of evidence that human sacrifice was, was common. Well, here's the, th- here's the thing. You worship... Molech with offering your firstborn child, but you do so by offering them to the flames. And the child burns to death. Now, as God states this several places in the Scripture, He hates this. And He's condemning it over and over and over again. Well, when Israel practiced it, where did they practice it? Jeremiah 7 says they practiced it in the Valley of Hinnom, Gah-Hinnom. So, God gives a prophecy to Jeremiah. He says, Okay, you burn your children in that valley. He says, I'm going to let the Babylonians come in, conquer you, and guess where are you going to burn? He says, I'm going to throw your bodies in that valley and you're going to burn. And that's, of course, exactly what happened. Uh, it happened not only with the Babylonians, but later, you know, with uh, the Romans. But when you have, you know, these massive amounts, uh, and, and again. And all that, but I got time. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of rambling just a little bit extra detail, maybe more detail than you really want. But but we you read Josephus sometime. Read about the body counts that when you have millions of Jews slaughtered in the fall of Jerusalem, you know, to Rome, what are they going to do with all those bodies? They roll them down into the valleys and light them on fire. That's what they do. And that's, I mean... In other words, the prophecy of Jeremiah, was it fulfilled? Yes. Okay, so now you get to the words of Jesus, New Testament now. This is already, it's already happened. The Babylonian, not the Roman, but the Babylonian uh, invasion and conquering of Jerusalem, it's already happened. Jeremiah's prophecies have already been fulfilled, but Jesus utters the same sort of prophecies. But he takes the word gachinom, the phrase in Hebrew, he drags it over into Greek, and that's where we get the word Gehenna. And Jesus uses that to describe eternal punishment, right? This trash heap of bodies burning constantly. He uses that to describe eternal punishment. And he does so in multiple uh, you know, passages. And again, we've, we've combed through those passages before uh, in varying you know, contexts, primarily Revelation 20 in our study there. But here's the point. When we see this idea of, of uh, all the earth coming to worship God. When Christ comes back and his enemies are destroyed, do you see the reverse? All right. It was, you know, the, the enemies of, of uh, the, or the Jews, the enemies of the Jews came and conquered the Jews, right? And, those, and their bodies were burning in that valley. In history, historically. But now, in the end of time, when God comes back to restore his people, to save the remnant of Jews, now it's the enemies of the Jews that is going to be burning in that valley. Does that make sense? That's the reversal of the imagery. And, he, and God says, and, and, it's, and it's a really, you know, strong way to say it, but God is putting an exclamation point on the reality that if you resist him, that's where you end up. And so when, his, when the rest of the world gathers to worship God at Jerusalem, guess what? we got to walk by Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom, right? And that's, that's the picture. The purpose, then, of, of Isaiah finishing this prophecy with this picture is simply this. It's pretty obvious. But the way in which this majestic book of Isaiah concludes points to the need for unrepentant people to turn to the Lord. Who is the only God, the Holy One of Israel, because Yahweh is salvation. In other words, there's our play on the name, right? What's the theme of Isaiah, right? The salvation of the Lord. The theme of Isaiah is found in the name Isaiah. Remember, many of the Old Testament prophets will do that. Not all of them, perhaps, but most of them do where their name is actually a, a good way to summarize some of the big ideas of the key theme of the book. The name Isaiah, Yeshayahu, means the salvation of the Lord, or Yahweh is salvation. And that has been his big theme throughout the entire book, is that God can save. And look at how God saves. He's, he's, he demonstrates some physical major deliverances, primarily We have the whole Sennacherib invasion, right? And then the destruction of of the Assyrian army uh, outside the walls of Jerusalem as God saves Hezekiah. That's recorded in the book. And yet, that ability that God has to physically save is meant to simply illustrate and prove the reality that he can also spiritually save. Because we need salvation not merely from, you know, some physical. Uh, tyrant. Rather, we need salvation from ourselves. We need salvation from our sin and the resultant wrath of God against our sin. That's what we need salvation from. So Isaiah then, after demonstrating that God is able to physically save, you could say that's really one of the big themes of Isaiah chapter 1 to 39, then he takes from chapter 40 to 66 and he develops the theme that God can spiritually save that he can do something even harder, even more appropriate, even something more impressive than physically save, you know, by wiping out 185,000 Assyrian troops with an angel. Like, that's pretty impressive. But God can do something even more impressive, and that is he can take our sins and he can lay them upon the shoulders of a perfect, innocent, voluntary sacrifice, a suffering servant, Right? There's, that's the idea of the servant songs in chapter 60 to 60 or 40 to 66. And that big chunk there where we, we talked through the servant songs, it's, it's talking about the Messiah who will be the, the one who brings deliverance physically and spiritually. And that's the big theme of Isaiah. But he still rests it at your door. And he says, this is what God is able to do isaiah Yeshiyahu, the salvation of the lord yahweh saves that's the big theme but you must accept it you must bow before him you must as he says remember the invitation he he offers and in, in isaiah 45 he says look unto me all the ends of the earth and be saved there is salvation in none other there is one true god there is one redeemer right? How many times has he said that through the book of Isaiah? That's the big theme. Well, now he comes down to this, the final, you know, few lines of his prophecy. And that's where he decides to end. As he said, he gives you one more charge to say, are you going to bow to him? Because if you do, praise the Lord, you get a joy, this glory, all the wonderful, you know, aspects of the restored eternal kingdom, et cetera. All that he's been talking about for several chapters. He says, or you can reject him. And so God will give you what you wanted. And you will be exiled from his presence, you know, in eternal judgment. Because we're eternal beings. We're, you know, we're, we're made in the image of God. We're going to last forever. But the question is, where are we going to last forever, right? In the presence of God or in his, you know, in exiled from his, from his presence. And that's, those are the only two options. And the scripture is so clear on that. And Isaiah, he ends with this very sober warning. Which is why, again, like I said, Jesus will come back and he will harness these words of Isaiah to talk about eternal punishment over and over and over again uh, in, his, in his teaching. In order to wake us up, to get us to think of the importance of this, the eternal weightiness of this. Does that make sense? Aren't you all glad you came this morning, right? It's a somber mood. Yeah, come The ones that came through the tribulation that he saved? Because they came to him? Gentile and his Jewish uh people who turned against him before? Yeah, you mean the missionary efforts? Or no, what do you mean? Um, during the tribulation mm-hmm. there were some that were saved, including the Jews, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those that went through the tribulation, those that were, you know, that are being gathered to worship him. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yep. And, but I think it'll last, you know, through the entirety of the millennial period for sure. But that's the idea is there, because remember, there'll be continual people being born. There'll be a, a boom in a worldwide population, you know, et cetera. And, and with, and so there'll be a constant need for missionary endeavors, Does that make sense? Even in the millennium. Yeah. All right. Speak now or forever hold your peace. All right. You got one more chance for questions on Isaiah because next week we start Proverbs. All right. But yeah, Sharon. In the part where they sacrifice the babies, you know, the firstborn. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, yeah. So what about the people on earth here that get pregnant and decide they don't want the kid and they abort? Him? Mm-hmm. What happens to them? What happens to the child or what happens to the person who commits the, the abortion? You know, like to me, that's like mm-hmm. sacrificing a child. Mm-hmm, can that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, it is—it's our modern equivalent, right? We want to consider ourselves so sophisticated and so modern, right? But we're still sacrificing our young to the god of our own convenience, you know. So we don't call him molek, but it's the same sort of thing. You know what I'm saying? It's just the modern equivalent of it, and God hates it just as much. Now, can it be forgiven? Sure. You know, can God's grace extend to someone who, you know, has an abortion? Absolutely. You know, but the act is is wrong. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah. that the mother of Mm-hmm. about the just say, I Sure. No it's I mean it's it's and that's one of the big moral battles in our generation right I mean we're trying to fight the evils of that and it's it's amazing how much of the society is has just caved That's right that's right Yep oh you can you can definitely count on that right the just judge of the universe who was upset at Israel for worshiping molech and he says I'm going to take you to account for this Oh, yeah, we're not escaping that, you know, as, as a modern nation because we, you know, call it something else or, you know, it's, yeah, it's still a wicked sin. Did you have a thought, Corey? And then we're out of time. Yeah, you kind of elaborated that. I was just going to say that the altar of Moloch has just been replaced by the altar of convenience. Yeah. That's right. That's, here, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, God, have mercy on us, right? Because I mean, yeah, that's a that's a wicked evil that our nation is promoting and exporting. You know, it's that's. Uh, we're not gonna get away with that forever. All right, so next time, all right, we're gonna close in prayer for this, uh, today. We'll wrap up our study of the book of Isaiah. Next time, we're gonna jump into the book of Proverbs and we have a new uh, series ahead of us in our study here on Sunday School, all right? So there is so much to learn and I'm excited for it, but let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the time. Thank you for your truth. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Isaiah yeshayahu the idea that you save salvation is of the lord and yet father we must uh, come to you for that salvation we must submit to you we must repent of our sins and trust in the saving work of the lord jesus christ uh, or else pay the eternal penalty that we are asking for father help this reality to be something that we understand that we uh, that prompts us to action to not only make sure of our own calling and election, as the apostle Peter put it, Or, uh, but also to, to be missionaries to the ends of the earth, to help, tell others about who you are. So Lord, we commit to you the remainder of this day and, and, and anticipate our next study here uh, in the Sunday School Hour. And we ask your blessing upon all of it in Christ's name. Amen.